Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are back. I was going to say we are still in in quarantine and and working from home in on uh, the Josh Marshall podcast, but this week we have this entirely new reality. And I'm not, you know, there's probably various ways we could say it's not quite a new reality. It's it's it is a coming to the fore of existing realities, but the bottom line is that when we met a week ago, we were still talking about the COVID crisis, the COVID epidemic, which has been going on for about three months in the United States, and we're clearly past the peak. We are starting to loosen the strictures of the lockdown around the country. It's called, you know, people call it reopening. I've never thought that was a great way to put it. But it is happening everywhere. And then suddenly, uh, a spark lights an entirely new conflagration. And it's many other things besides this. But certainly, in terms of the lockdown, suddenly, we're not just not in a lockdown. We are, we are with people on the streets, in cities, crowds, police, charging into crowds. I mean, you know, we've, we've gone from... Uh, We've gone from a historically unprecedented lockdown around the United States to a spasm of uh, protesting, public protest, verging into rioting in some cases, verging into police riots in other cases. And obviously, this is not only something we can see through the prism of the sudden and jagged end of the public lockdowns. This is a story in some ways that has been going on for four centuries in the United States. In a more particular way, it has been going on for five or six years, which is the the history of what we now call the Black Lives Matter movement. We, we, we could go through all the names going back to 2014, 2015. We know all of them, and we now have uh, this this new case, George Floyd, this man who we now have not only the accusations based on what we see on the videotapes, but two separate coroner's inquests, autopsies, delivering the news that confirms what we all knew from watching the video, that, that... this man was was killed in the in in the process of an arrest for a fairly mundane crime, if indeed it was even a crime. I believe what what started this whole thing was the the allegation, the suspicion that he was trying to pass a counterfeit twenty dollar bill, um, and somehow we end up with one police officer kneeling on his neck for a little less than ten minutes either asphyxiating him or creating sufficient compression of the carotid artery that he goes into cardiac arrest. One way or another, he's dead. And 
we have seen this story. This is the whole point of of this part of our public reality, precisely that this was not new. That is the problem. If this was if this was a new thing, an isolated tragedy, it would be an isolated tragedy. But this happens over and over again. But this time, it was different. You have an outburst in one city, which at first was maybe something like what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, I lose track, honestly, of how many... I, I it was like 20, 2014, I want to say. Well, I mean, I, I, at this point, I, I, I just lose... Tra- so much has happened in the last five or six years. I lose track of when these things even were. It started like that, but then rapidly spread everywhere around the country. It has been... There's some cities more than others, but Atlanta, Georgia, Washington, D.C., New York City, uh, uh, Los Angeles, California, uh, Dallas, you know, pretty much everywhere. The exceptions are the big cities where where there's been relatively less of it. And so, again, this basic question of, on the one hand, it was, it's shocking and outrageous. We don't have to wonder why people are so upset and yet the reason we're so upset is that it's not new we had a we had another you know somewhat comparable situation a month ago we've had them six months ago you can pick any any span of time we've had it and it must be some of the some aspect of this must be the fact that we are coming off three months when the country is locked down, where a hundred more than 100,000 people have died in this country over the last three months. 30 or 40 million people have lost their jobs over, over this period of time. You know, we don't even know what the unemployment rate is, probably 20, 25%. Both of these realities, as we know, have fallen disproportionately on the African-American community, the Hispanic community around the country, um, people who are lower income, who are, are, are still working in you know, essential jobs. Somehow these things all fit together. We can see that precisely how uh, we, we are only going to learn over, over the coming years and decades. And then yesterday, we had this surreal, absurd, coarse, clownish event where the president basically used the U.S. military and federal police. I don't think the D.C. police, Kate, I don't know if you've, if you've seen this confirmed, but what I at least, my understanding was yesterday is that after they kind of picked this apart, they realized the D.C. police were not involved in that. I, I, probably the local government refused. Uh, but basically, you had a completely peaceful demonstration that uh, uh, federal police and the U.S. military basically charged into and broke up forcibly with tear gas and flashbangs and even rubber bullets. And it was clearly all time to be happening as the president gave this speech. And then he marches over and holds up a Bible. I mean, just, you know, like <laughs> these things are so uh, uh crude and over the top. And uh, at the end of the day, you have the president unleashed the U.S. military on a peaceful 
demonstration in the capital of the United States to get a, a photo op. So there we are. Um, just to shift gears closely, I'm just going to, because we've got a lot, of talk, lot to talk to, I'm going to uh, quickly remind you that our podcast is brought to you by a an independent business that is uh, close to our hearts because they've been our sponsor for some time. Let me just tell you quickly. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a, a hard transition to make here, but let me do the, the best I can. Grady's cold brew is here to help you stay cool and caffeinated this summer with their signature New Orleans style iced coffee. If you're still holed up at home, Grady's can bring the coffee shop to you. Their line of brew-it-yourself beanbags shipped directly to your door for less than a buck a cup, and the system couldn't be easier to use. Just add water to the pre-measured filter bags for gallons of completely customizable cold brew. No special equipment required, and shipping is free on all Grady's beanbag products. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. It's great stuff. I have some right here I'm drinking as we speak. And let me just add uh, one other other thing before we get to the show proper i've mentioned a number of times we've mentioned a number of times over the last couple months that you've got to get out and support local businesses independent businesses uh because that is a good way to be a human and it's also about preserving what we want to and need to preserve in this country now that's been going on we know that's been the case because we've been on these public lockdowns and lots of businesses can't function. Now we have the fact that a lot of businesses have been trashed, uh, broken into, uh, burned down, uh, boarded up. Um, and the reasons behind that are complicated and the blame is complicated. To some extent, you know, we always, in, in these moments, we always try to distinguish between the legitimate protesters and the opportunity opportunists and the looters and stuff like that in in reality it's the reality is never quite so cut and dry uh crowds even crowds that are there for legitimate reasons sometimes do things in crowd contexts that they uh didn't intend to do in any case the point is the need to support local retailers local restaurants local bars and coffee shops is even greater now because of what is happening. And that's just a reality that transcends all the other questions about what we are talking about today. And the biggest reality, of course, is that we have a big problem in this country. And again, the country was based on this problem, and it still is with us today. We have the fact that our African-American brothers and sisters in this country get treated to a kind of, not just systemic discrimination, but systemic violence, which has never been the reality for the rest of the citizens of this country. It's still happening. It's 2020. We see it in these horrible videos. It's not new. It's more visible because of technology. And that is something that the country uh, has to grapple with and hopefully will be grappling with. So, David, what are we talking about? Thanks, Josh, for that uh, 
for your introduction. I think that's a powerful kind of way to sum up where we are now. Before we get started, I wanted to introduce our colleague, Matt Shuham, who joins us today. Hey, Matt, how Hi. are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Thank you. And Kate Riga, as always, is here with us, too. Um, I thought we could start by focusing on Washington, D.C., since overnight it feels like that's, that was sort of the epicenter of the, the unrest in the country. And Josh, you mentioned the president's photo op and the ridiculous and grotesque display. Um, that seems like, in a way, sort of the first time, I don't know, some of these really aggressive tactics have broken through into the mainstream. We've seen lots of individual and isolated examples of excessive force used by the police in Minneapolis, which some listeners might not know is as kind of my hometown. Uh, you know, we've seen police there firing paint canisters on people who are just hanging out on their porch kind of after curfew. We've seen an, an NYPD van drive into a crowd of protesters here in New York City and so on and so on. Uh, but it did, it did seem like the scene at the White House yesterday, like you say, Josh, a split screen of President Trump giving his first tele, you know, national address over the the unrest over George Floyd's death, uh, on, in front of a backdrop of peaceful protesters uh, being tear gassed and mounted police kind of ramming through crowds and and breaking things up. Uh, also, that Trump could awkwardly pose with the Bible in front of St. John's Episcopal Church, the Church of the Presidents, uh, which is just a, just across the street from the White House. And Kate, since you are our resident D.C. resident, um, <laughs> you know, you've had really a firsthand view at, at the events that have unfolded. And I understand there was even some, you know, scary and, and uh, you know, violent activity right around your your home. Uh, so tell us kind of how it's felt in D.C. over the last few days and last night, if you can, and just give us a sense of things on the ground as you're seeing them. Yeah, so I would say I was actually at the protests um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, kind of, you know, just bearing witness and observing everything that was happening there. And I would say that, you know, I'm sure there were individual moments that I didn't see, but by and large, the police activity that I witnessed was restrained, I think you would say. There were moments of tension where, um, you know, maybe protesters would push over the gate, um, you know, the, the barricades in front at Lafayette Park, and then the, the police would storm up and then spray some tear gas sometimes, uh, which I guess is a pretty violent response. And people would get mad and there'd be a, it would come to a head and then would flatten out again. And that's kind of how things worked in those peaks and, and valleys. Um, and I would, the most of those clashes that I saw were in front of the White House in, in Lafayette Park, because the protesters here have been kind of following uh, a routine of going to the Capitol for a bit. And then, you know, to kind of re-energize things, then you march to the White House and then you protest there for a bit and kind of keeping things moving like that. Um, so mostly what I had seen in those three days went like that. You know, people would, things were calm. Maybe a protester, protesters would start lobbing things into the police or something like that. There'd be a clash and then it would disperse pretty quickly. And um, people on the scene were fairly well equipped with, you know, milk and tear gas solution and things. So people would kind of run around the crowd and help, you know, help people um, and it would go back to normal. But uh, yesterday, you could probably sense the increased 
police presence, even military presence in the city from the days prior. Uh, there were so many uh, helicopters circling that my apartment was kind of constantly vibrating because they were swooping so low. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that that distinction was pretty clear to me personally is Sunday night, like you mentioned, DT, um, we had the protest, we got back from the protest around um, like 9.30 or so. This was before DC was under curfew. And then about an hour and a half, two hours later, um, groups of looters came onto our street and, you know, it was you just saw cars slowly cruising past all the stores on the street, taking U-turns, and then, you know, they would find a place, people would spill out of it, loot a store, come back with their arms full of stuff, load it into the cars and keep driving. Um, and so on my street, that looked like the first place that people uh, broke the glass to was a Walgreens. And I'd say I saw at least like, 30 or 40 people stream in and out of there with their hands, you know, laden with goods. Um, and they ultimately ended up setting that on fire. But, you know, one of the most striking parts of that was they were using the benches in front of our apartment as kind of their, I don't know, command center for, for want of a better word, where they kind of discussed what they had and were planning where they were going next. And, you know, as Josh said, it can, you know, things are never as neat as you want them to be between protesters and looters, but this particular group, it was pretty clear we're not, we're there for sheer opportunism. You know, they were not, they weren't even really looking to destroy or to graffiti. It was pretty clear they were there to take advantage of the police being distracted. Um, and they were kind of planning where they could get drugs like Oxycontin, um, things like that. So I would say at like five or six places on my block were looted. Um, and I think part of the reason it wasn't more is because we've got a lot of restaurants near us, which don't seem to be as, you know, clear of targets for people who are looking to grab armfuls of goods than our pharmacies or, um, like the T-Mobile store, which got wrecked. So all of the, as all of this was happening, this was Sunday night and you couldn't get through to 911. It was so flooded that, you know, they just kept having an automated voice telling you, the lines are overwhelmed. No one can take your call right now. Stay on the line. Keep trying. Um, so, Kate, was it was yeah. it your sense? Because because before we went on the air, I, I I was mentioning some similar stuff in 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 New York City. These groups did it did it seem like, you know, that this is a group of people come into a certain neighborhood basically in an organized way, try to take stuff out of stores and then kind of put it in cars and take it out like that organized as opposed to kind of, you know, groups of people happen to be in the same place, same time kind of thing. Um, I would say it was unorganized in the way that it didn't seem as if people say had like a map of the neighborhood memorized and, and, you know, were systemically hitting targets. It was more, they were on this block and they were like, you know, what's a high value target on this block. And I would say that, you know, every time, like I say, the police were distracted for a long time, but every time you could hear a siren in the distance, they would like bolt, get into the cars and drive away. And then as soon as the threat abated, they would come back. And most people seemed at least a bit hesitant to be the ones to actually do the destruction to get into the stores. Um, 
like I said, which is why I think the Walgreens got hit so many times because once someone had broken, right, you know, then broken you just the walk glass. in, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting because just to uh, bring listeners up to what we were talking about before, I had heard this kind of very anecdotally first, but then I I had heard it enough from from people I know who had seen it with their own eyes. Basically, in Manhattan and in, in kind of lower Manhattan, in in mid lower Manhattan Midtown, there are avenues that have a lot of high end retail. Basically, for people who aren't familiar with the city, so the kind of places, you know, high value relative to not caring that much, and basically. Um, Groups coming in with cars, having people with cell phones operating as lookouts, and kind of systematically going through and looting these kind of high-end retail stores. Uh, and as you say, I mean, clearly when it's like that, this isn't people who the moment gets too much for them and they kind of go and throw a rock through a window. These are people who are there. They can get free stuff, and they're, it's, it's, it's robbing just in a different social context when you can do it with seeming impunity. But, but so it does seem like in both cities, this is something that has kind of come into effect after a few days when people know mm-hmm. this is happening. Um, I assume not just with, with sirens, but if you're kind of doing this in a sophisticated way, you can probably monitor police scanners and know where they are and where they aren't and stuff like that. Interesting to, right. to hear it in DC. Yeah. And I would also say this experience that I had on Sunday night, this was the first time that any of the violence really became unbound by the area directly around the White House. Because prior to this, the the past two days that I'd been there, you know, there was graffiti or broken windows and things like that. But it was really pretty much kept to that area around Lafayette Park where the protesters were. And I'd say we're about five or six blocks from the White House. So this was, you know, the the furthest I'd seen it spread. Um, you know, and, and to, just to, to emphasize one point, that on Sunday when I was with the protesters, the, the leaders, um, well, I mean, there's not really a technical leader because Black Lives Matter isn't behind these protests. They've been doing um, car caravans. I think my guess would be they don't They don't want to be responsible if there's a COVID strike here from these protests. But kind of the makeshift leaders of it were addressing everyone in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And, you know, we heard countless times they were begging everyone to, you know, stay peaceful, don't be destructive, don't let the message be hijacked. Um, And it just seemed that the protests during the day, protesters would be very peaceful, very on message. And then, you know, a shift kind of happened at night where you know, opportunists realize that this this is the moment to strike while the police were en masse kind of guarding against the peaceful protesters and then they were taking advantage here. So, you know, it's hard because there's so many dynamics going on and there are, you know, I've seen on Twitter a lot of people want to hue to the narrative that works better for their stories, which tend to be either you know, all of the violence is caused by the police, the, the looters are, you're letting yourself be distracted, or the protesters and the looters are one and the same. And I don't, on a, from what I've witnessed the past four days, neither of those things are clearly, cleanly true. But at least the group that was in my neighborhood, based on their conversations and based on the graffiti they left here, had really nothing to do with the mass of people who were downtown, you know, protesting against the, the killing of George Floyd. Right. And 
Just to close the loop maybe on the D.C. situation, there were a number of surreal images even after the president's remarks and photo op and, and all that. There were Black Hawk military helicopters hovering really low uh, above the ground, basically performing crowd control with the kind of backwash of the propellers uh, trying to kick up wind and noise to clear people out. You had uh, General Mark Miley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in fatigues, walking around the streets of D.C. Ostensibly, I guess he said he was observing the National Guard and, you know, giving high fives and job well done kind of thing. But, um, you know, a bit unnerving to see the top military official in the country in in camouflaged military fatigues right. prowling the streets, basically, um, you know, when, you know, obviously the city of D.C. and the country as a whole is not under military occupation, uh, and- let alone over its over its own citizens. And a, and a piece of that, that's this is just, you know, anecdotal from what I've observed, but the protesters tended to respond with anger whenever kind of the police stepped up there, you know, getting like ramboed up. So a dynamic I saw multiple times is you just kind of had your normal DC police, you know, they were wearing uh, bulletproof vests and everything, but just police. And then you would have another group come out who were in riot gear or those original police, you know, go fetch shields and batons and then come back. And that would always elicit this, you know, a big response. And um, so I think, I, you know, the increasing militarization, I'm sure, kicked up, you know, a similar response. I wasn't at the protest yesterday, but that seems to be the dynamic, whereas things would, you know, kind of go back to a simmer when some of the officers would um, talk with the protesters or sometimes the protesters started up chants of take a knee. And I, I saw a couple officers, you know, do that when they asked. And that would kind of inspire a few, at least a few minutes of calm. Right. So, Matt, let me. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead, Josh. Did you want oh, to let me just something? say, let me just. And this is for Kate, but since I guess all of us were probably watching it on TV, too, I'm curious what the rest of you thought. What struck me about yesterday is, as Kate says, and by yesterday, I mean what happened yesterday afternoon around the White House. As Kate says, these protests and crowds are seldom, uh, you know, all one thing or another, totally peaceful, totally out of control. And yet, what we saw yesterday afternoon, that that crowd that was in Lafayette Park maybe loud, maybe boisterous, but seemed to be entirely peaceful. I mean, almost kind of like set piece peaceful, right? If you're trying to kind of dramatize a certain story. Um, And in that one case, it did seem pretty black and white. They're just kind of there behind the barricades, you know, doing chants and stuff like that, but not not, uh, rushing anything, not throwing anything. And... You see first, I guess, at the beginning, the uh, uh, police, and again, not D.C. police, you know, kind of march up to the line that they're at. And, you know, they they started it, right? I mean, it was very, it was very uh, concerted, and that's what made it sort of, uh, I don't know, jarring, baffling. And again, and, and, and again, that it was clearly done to be timed to this speech. It was all kind of like a set piece. So I'm curious, but, but Kate, you're saying that, um, the, the 
mood, the sort of the feel in D.C. from at least where you could, you know, uh, perceive it from started out different yesterday. Right. Is that is that kind of that it was already kind of a very different thing early from earlier in the day, not just when 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 that when that, uh, you know, choreographed event happened uh, six, seven o'clock in the evening. Right. So, yeah, my perspective on that was just, again, I wasn't at the protests um, yesterday, so I was a few blocks away. But the number of cars that were just kind of cruising down my street and um, I'm in the Logan Circle area. So uh, patrolling, sitting at the park it was just really increased in presence. And I think that's a reflection on um, the mobilization that the mayor did of all these other forces to supplement the D.C. police, which seemed to free up a lot of manpower for them to spill over into this area. And I think the combination between that and just the constantly circling helicopters, which were, you know, quite eerie, it did make it feel like some kind of war zone. Um, those two things just felt different than the, the days prior had, even before the, you know, violent clearing of the square. Yeah. Got it. Matt, let me bring you in. You're here in Brooklyn, not too far from where I'm at either. And we've seen New York City go under a curfew for the first time since the 1940s, I want to say, right? Which I believe happened at that time when I think a white officer had shot and killed a black soldier in Harlem, I want to say. So it's kind of eerily resonant types of events. Um, The curfew went into place at 11 p.m. last night. It's being moved up to, I think, 8 p.m. until 5 a.m. sort of for the rest of the week, I think through the 7th of June. But what's your sense of, I know you've been following the various threads pretty closely, Matt, not only here in New York, but around the country. What's your sense of how things have gone in New York and the city's response to it and then kind of other flashpoints that have have cropped up? And maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what's happening in Louisville, Kentucky as well. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess I can start in New York and, and move on to Kentucky. Um, I, I went out on um, Friday to the Barclays Center, um, where there was probably two or three thousand people, um, and then uh, that group marched to Fort Greene Park and then split up from there. Um, similar dynamic that things started out um, pretty calm, and then both as the marching started and as the group split up, um, it grew more intense. I spoke to people in the crowd at the Barclays Center and a few dynamics that I saw. One is that people generally had not been to large events at all, as Josh mentioned, in the past couple months. And in New York in the summer, it's it's exciting to be outside. There's a lot of energy in the city. So that times two months is a lot of energy. And even in this peaceful crowd, people were it, it was like uh, walking out of a dark room for the first time in weeks. People were just desensitized to what it was like to be around a lot of people. So that was one aspect of it. Um, and yes, I did observe the dynamic with the police. Um, as we marched through Fort Greene Park to, to Fort Greene Park and then onward, people were generally sort of clapping from their stoops, uh, cars, and even some city buses were honking in support. Um, at the same time, the, the, the crowd was definitely um, ideological, obviously. Um, someone next to me had a uh, 
burn them all sign and it was a drawing of a police precinct and um, reference to the precinct that was uh, burned down in Minneapolis. Um, and so as the groups uh, got, as the group got smaller, I ended up with a group uh, that went to the, I think it's the 88th precinct, um, where a couple uh, police cruisers were sort of destroyed. Um, there, there was a very real anger at uh, police and specifically the NYPD and not um, obviously for this uh, police killing in Minneapolis, but also a lot of New Yorkers are just harassed by the police all the time. And so when a protest like this uh, gets going, there's a lot of pent up anger uh, at the police. So um, uh, yeah, I saw a lot of people just taking that opportunity that if they had a, a chance to kick out a police car's window, that's what they did. And I think that group is distinct from people who are just looting, you know, for the fun of it, uh, you know, taking things because there's an opportunity and people who I don't know if you would call it a political point, but I, it does seem pretty political to me that, you know, if, if your life is governed by a police force that you think is overbearing and you see a chance to make a point about it, you're going to make a point about it. Um, I also uh, saw that uh, tactic we've seen a few times now across the country of when uh, police wanted to clear a block, they would sort of line up at the end of it and wait for a count and then rush the crowd with pepper spray, with the sort of longer batons that they would use to push people out of the way. So that did uh, heighten the levels of violence. Um, it's been interesting these past few days to see what's going on in Brooklyn versus Manhattan, because in Brooklyn, I think it's been there's been a lot less just uh, blatant stealing from stores and a, a more of a focus on the anti-police message, whether it's peaceful or not, but more focused politically on uh, that message. Um, so yeah, like Kate said, there, there's so, so much that's happening all at once and it's difficult to try to put it all in the same bucket. Um, but I think the thing that I've tried to uh, be attuned to is that as far as a Black Lives Matter perspective, it's true that we have these police killings all the time. It's not true that we have this response all of the time. And I think to the extent that you can say whether something has been successful or not, um, there are a lot of videos of police responding violently. And that is the goal of this movement is to show the rest of America what that looks like. And so to the extent that these videos are on cable news all day, um, that is a success to show the rest of the country this is what we deal with every day. And that's certainly true from the people uh, I spoke to. Um, quick thing on Louisville, um, the, a, another killing, um, this was early Monday morning, but pretty much overnight Sunday, about 12.15 in the morning. Um, that was not at a protest, actually. It was at a uh, gas station parking lot where there was a um, barbecue stand. And people were congregating there, eating barbecue after uh, the citywide curfew. And there's one video from the scene that basically shows police and National Guard showing up to disperse the crowd. You sort of hear a shot going off. Uh, police and National Guard hesitate for a minute to try to find where the shot came from. They return fire en masse toward wherever that shot came from. It's not clear from the video. 
After the smoke is cleared, the owner of the barbecue was shot dead. The police have not said definitively it was them. The governor seemed to say it was them, but the police you, chief... You mean, you mean once the smoke cleared, basically, it was mm-hmm. clear that he had died in that exchange of gunfire? Yeah, and, and the police are saying it's not clear whether the first shot was, uh, was, was what killed him or whether the police returning fire was what killed him. Um, but it seems like a you know, a beloved member of the community would feed police for free, would feed people who were hungry for free, is now uh, uh, dead in Louisville. And a very uh, a tragic situation, but also a, um, especially after the, the kill- police killing of Breonna Taylor in March, um, pretty volatile. Yeah. And am I right, Matt, that the U.S. attorney or the FBI sort of federal authorities are getting involved in the case now as well, right? There's sort of more attention being well isn't this and isn't this also the case where it it turns out that the police who were there weren't using their body cams or didn't have body cams yes um so the mayor said after the fact that the the police who responded did not have body cams um it's not clear if there's any other video i haven't seen it like i said there's one person who was on facebook live at the time this all happened um and yes, David, to your point, um, uh, I'm reading now that the U.S. attorney says he's working with the FBI and Kentucky State Police, and uh, Governor Bashir said the state police were investigating yesterday. So since then, this has become a federal effort as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a definitely something for our listeners and, and readers of the site to keep an eye on, and, and a story we'll be following, too, as it develops. I thought maybe we could spend just the last little bit of the podcast I don't know, trying to look ahead a little bit. It's hard to know where this story is headed. I, you know, we're barely a week after the police killing of George Floyd, which happened on Memorial Day. It's now Tuesday afternoon that we're recording. Um, Josh, obviously you have a background in history and maybe you can help us try to make sense of kind of where things go from here. Um, and also just maybe how this fits into, you know, Trump's political standing or his political future. Obviously, this is happening in the uh, in an election year. And we're, uh, you know, not quite, I guess, a little less than six months away from election day. Do I have my timing right? The days are obviously blurring for all of us. But, um, you know, when Trump had the photo op yesterday at the church, his campaign communications director tweeted out a photo kind of immediately after as, you know, as if it were a campaign event when it was ostensibly, I guess, just a a federal government White House kind of thing. So, Josh, is there anything just from your experience, your your academic background, that gives you a sense of of where things go from here, and also how you know how the this unrest impacts Trump politically? You know, I think that it's it's very hard to make sense of of big historical events as they happen. Uh, I think we all have a feeling that this is building in a in a to some sort of crescendo or maybe we're in the crescendo or we keep thinking we're at the crescendo and there's more right it's sort of like when you're uh you know you're coming out of a canyon you keep thinking you see the edge in the top and then there's a new edge behind it right and 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 um you know just uh four or five months ago or six months ago we were dealing with the impeachment of a president which is a big 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 historic event uh, then we had this pandemic. Now we have this. And 
it's hard to make sense of all of it. It's hard to know how the different things combine together. I do think they all combine together in a, a sort of a general crisis of legitimacy in the United States right now that is very tied to President Trump. But it is also what got us President Trump. You have this sort of rising force in American society that is more left, more young, less white, more concentrated in the cities, that is demanding a more equitable and just society. And that is in confrontation with at least an increasingly consolidating, if not growing, backlash against it. And that's what gave us Trump. And Trump has exacerbated everything, made everything, made every confrontation bigger, made every contrast bigger. And all of those are playing out. I mean, he didn't create the the COVID coronavirus, but how it is played out in the United States is 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 very tied to him. He certainly didn't create racism or police brutality, but he's in many ways made them his brand. And everything continues to escalate. And I think it's it's not at all clear whether we are building towards some you know, resolution or moving forward, or does it, or do we just continue to degenerate? My own sense, and maybe this is naively optimistic, is I think the president is desperate. And I think he is actually losing control of the situation politically, even as it seems like he continues to exploit it. Uh, I don't think, I think that that episode yesterday you know, it's funny, we, we've, Matt just mentioned that we have seen all of these cases, I mean, as you say, lots of cases concentrated over the last three or four days of police becoming violent with people who are not being violent towards them. It's always hard to know, you know, the, the total context of a moment, but you see a video and there's one person standing there kneeling or just, you know, kind of yelling and a police officer comes up and like hits them over the head out of the blue. Uh, we see, we've seen a lot of that. And, you know, even in, 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 you had that case in New York city where there are a couple of police vehicles up against either up against a, a, a barricade and then people behind it. Then, and the, clearly the police officer kind of lost, lo- they lost their temper and they just drove into the crowd. And, um, most of those situations that I have seen, it seems like the police out of control. And in some of the cases, you can see that an individual cop has a temper tantrum and attacks someone. And clearly, you, you want police to be, I mean, it's a hard job. It's tense. You got a lot of people screaming. You do have people throwing things. But again, it's a job, and you need to be trained not to react that way. Still, these seem to be cases of, of, of breakdown in many cases. And what we saw yesterday, what stood out to me more than anything, was that it was planned. It was planned and timed to create a certain thing, and they created it. And 
I don't think that is something that is helpful to the president. I think he is showing himself in many ways to be an instigator of civic breakdown and violence. Uh, and so that's my sense of the of the politics of it. But again, it, it is living in history is is about not knowing the future. Well, yeah. and so I knows? think a piece of it, too, you know, is how we had Trump on that call with um, the governors the other day when he was calling them weak and saying they had to dominate the protesters, which kind of goes to a point that, you know, you and, were getting and wasn't at. that actually the same day? That was yesterday yeah, that morning, was yesterday, right? Yeah. Okay. So it's all the same. It's all the same. I mean, I lose right. track of time too, but it's all the same yeah. day. Yeah. Which I think gets to the, you know, the operative point here, and I think why the those uh, moments of police brutality against the the protesters are so concerning, you know, to to most people who are watching it, is that there's a fundamental power mismatch at work here. You know, the police are armed and even their nonviolent responses include tear gas and rubber bullets and getting whacked with batons, you know, and the protesters who even when I've seen them get riled up, you know, they're throwing water bottles from like a hundred feet. And so it's, you already have this power imbalance where you're counting on police to be well-trained enough not to rise because they've, you know, they have the weapons, they have the force, they know how to use it. All the while, while what the protests are even based on is that police have shown time and time again that they don't show that restraint with certain sectors of our society, in this case, um, black people. So, you know, you've got that happening everywhere where police feel comfortable acting violently on camera, you know, which is just even loops into the George Floyd killing with this idea that these police feel they have such impunity that they can do these things while they're being filmed and there'll be no end result for them. And then you, so you've got all this festering and then Trump's, you know, in mostly the void of him talking to the American people at all, you know, despite what the press secretary said, we haven't had any address to the nation from him. And you, all you've got him saying is, you know, dominate, squash it, quash the rebellion, you know, break them down. And it's just, things here are so tense. So the idea that he's advocating use more force, use more violence, don't try to talk to them, don't try to, you know, see things from their perspective is just, I mean, not that it's unexpected from him at this point, but it is startling. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think you're right. You're certainly right, Kate, that there is a lot of things going on here. But when you see these numerous instances of police officers attacking clearly identified press and again not someone working with a kind of like an underground newspaper who says they're a journalist again they have rights too but it is it is a different thing when it's like a cnn crew like dude there is no question these people are reporters right it's not like heat of the moment you you weren't quite sure those things happening and a lot of these cases of just spontaneous violence from the police, there's no question that that is being driven to a significant degree by the president out there basically saying, kick ass, dominate. And, and talking about, I mean, we've talked about these cases earlier in the episode about organized looting, not people who kind of 
get caught up in the moment and throw a rock through a, through a window. But people who are there trying to get as much stuff as possible and drive it off and, I don't know, sell it on, you know, sell it on eBay six months from now or something like that. Th- those people need to be arrested. That's, that is opportunism, wrong, illegal. But you've got the president of the United States talking about, like, starting a war with a big chunk of the civilian population. And that, and that is having an effect. The other thing I wanted to say, and then I'll apologize for interrupting so much. You know, when you talked about, like, you know, rubber bullets, tear gas... I think most of us have probably seen that incident, I believe it was in Minneapolis, where a group of police officers are marching down a street and they, the, the people who are taking the video, and maybe they like, you know, sassed the police or maybe they said something or something. We don't know quite exactly, but nothing else. And the police officer turns around and shoots like either a paint, uh, either a paint pellet or like a rubber bullet right at the person standing on their stoop. Right. And so clearly that is just a case where he's pissed and he's like, you I know, think one of the I think one of the officers even said, like, light him up or something yeah, like, ex- as they were walking like, down like, the block. Like, so ex- it was a clear kind of like signal to escalate the situation. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is the headlines I saw of that, it said, like, you know, use like non-lethal projectile or something like that. The reality is any projectile shot from a gun is it might be mostly not lethal. But, but you shoot something out of a gun, I don't, it, whether it's rubber or, or paint or something, you can kill someone. That's just obvious, right? And, and uh, there are certain crowd control situations where that might be necessary. But shooting, shooting any projectiles can kill someone. And you can just see in a case like, I mean, that is one of those cases, to your point, Matt, those what the fuck moments. Like, dude. <laughs> You're marching down a street and someone's like watching from their house and you shot them. And like, just because it wasn't a, 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 a bullet bullet, like, dude, you can't do that. Like who, you know, and you do see this pattern. And again, this has a history in the history of policing in this country. Didn't start with Trump, but there's always been a tendency with policing in this country and not only in this country to go from the police as a civilian force meant to preserve law and order to you know to protect lives to investigate crimes to a force that is has its own political consciousness of its own role and for like you know most of us who who are residents of of New York City like, you know, do you work for us or do we kind of work for you somehow? And you see that when, you know, before this stuff started, there was one of the police union heads had this thing where he went on Twitter. He says, declaring war on yeah. Mayor de Blasio. And yeah. you're like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, police have unions. They can they have free speech, in, you know, outside of, you know, when they're off the job. But like there always is this tension that you you see kind of like do we we the citizens need to get out of the way so you can do your job that's the you hear that a lot let us do our job well we determine what your job you you work for us like this isn't you know so there's always this issue and you can see that it is something very central to what trump has done that he has encouraged that, 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 you know, 
that he speaks for that impulse. And you can see that that has had an effect and, and doesn't start with Trump, not all about Trump, but Trumpism has escalated this and made it, I think, brought it not just out in the open, but sort of empowered those elements within urban police forces and the individuals who kind of think in those terms. And it's, it's, it's very dangerous. And again, when you see a group of heavily body armored police marching down a street, seeing people who are kind of poking their heads up above the parapet and shooting them, I mean, something's wrong. Something's wrong. A few, yeah, absolutely. A few brief points on that. That that same police union, the Sergeants Benevolent Association in New York, that declared war on De Blasio, I think a year ago, is that their Twitter account is the one that doxed his um, daughter yesterday, and so definitely some some uh, hard hitting political action between the leadership of the city and the other leadership of the city. To your point. Um, the same dynamic at play in Cincinnati, where outside of the county jail, um, briefly, there was a Blue Lives Matter flag or a thin blue line flag, which is the version of the American flag that's in black and white, but has the blue stripe running down the middle. And I think people are right to be concerned that, yeah, the, the political interests of these huge uh, police forces can sometimes get in their own way. Um, one more point on the politics of of the police is that we there was a rumor that turned out not to be true that Derek Chauvin, the the officer who killed uh, George Floyd, had attended a Trump rally and, and gotten on stage with him. It turned out to be someone who looked like him. But in 2019, I think in October, Trump went to Minneapolis and held a huge rally there. And he did have the police union president, Bob Kroll, and about a dozen officers from the area on stage with him. And actually, the reason they were on stage, I, I hadn't remembered this until we looked into it recently, was that the mayor of Minneapolis had forbade, uh, forbidden, forbade uh, police from wearing their uniforms at political events. In in response to that, the police created a sh- the union created a shirt, cops for Trump, that they ne- they went on Fox News and sold, and then they went onto the Trump rally stage with the shirts and were applauded by the president, and that was all uh, not that long ago, a few months ago. So um, definitely, the I mean, reporters who were at Ferguson will say that none of this the, about the police targeting the media is new. But certainly the president has put himself right in the middle of that. I, I, th- I think, too, you know, w- with uh, I think it's always important to see that, you know, teachers work for local governments. They have political views. They state them. Right. They, that That's OK. Um, they have unions. They have union protections. They they if if they go out and 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 speak politically you know, when they're not literally on the job, they can't be fired for that. and They shouldn't be fired for that. So there's always this tension, right? Um, and yet, and yet, police have guns. They have extraordinary powers to make immediate decisions that affect people's life, life and death. So it's, it's different with police. Uh, when, when, it is a even under the best circumstances in, in much the same way at the national level that we need an army. P- 
people serve honorably in the in in the US military but a strong heavily armed military in a civilian state is something that needs to be handled in the nature of things they have the guns they need to listen to what civilian authorities say uh there's a lot of parallels there and um again you just do have this basic issue of sort of like do we work for you do we have to get out of the way so you do your job as you define it or do you work for us and and with i mean look i I, i'm so down on mayor de blasio he sucks i'm so disappointed in him but he's the elected mayor of the city Members of the police force should not be going publicly saying they're declaring war on him. That's that's just not legit. And yet we have it happen. Yeah. Well, maybe um, maybe that's where we end things for now. <laughs> Obviously, lots more to get to, and we'll be bringing you all that news on on the website and and in episodes going forward. So, uh, again, another difficult transition, but remember that our podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Don't blame them for the horrible news. Um, they're just they're just helping us bring it to you. Uh, but remember, it's great stuff. Uh, you can get it delivered uh, around the country. You can pick it up at your local store. Go to Grady'sColdBrew.com, and if it's your first time ordering, you can get 20% off with the promo code TPM. You can also order it at Amazon.com, and like I said, you can, you can pick it up at your local store so uh stay safe everybody stay safe from the looters and stay safe from the police absolutely matt thanks for joining us yeah thanks for having me again all right talk to you all soon all right later bye